0: Well, welcome to today's FS Club webinar. I was about to say seminar. I guess I'm desperate to get out. Uh, What I'd like to do is to welcome one of our great regulars, uh, Dr. David Doyle. Uh, Many of you will know David, and it is a pleasure to bring him back, but on such a particularly uh, interesting day, uh, the day after uh, the United Kingdom has decided that it has a different way of negotiating international treaties. Uh, David is going to be talking about uh, regulation recovery, EU Financial Services in the wake of COVID-19. And there are a lot of interesting trends out there, as as I think we all know. And in the midst of all of this, the euro is appreciating uh, against the dollar and other currencies. So there's a lot going on out there that David is going to inform and enlighten us about. As you know, we don't introduce our guests, not because we're rude, but because you've read it all already. And it's online if you want to refresh your memory. But I would like to refresh your memory about our sponsors we are only able to provide uh, this wide range of topics covering technology, economics, finance, <coughs> and today a little bit of politics, I suspect, uh, because our sponsors are so kind, generous, and may I use the word tolerant, uh, allowing us to explore these subject areas. Um, as ever, uh, the idea is to get some conversation going and to do so, we're going to obviously restrict David sadly, who, who speaks eloquently on many topics to, a. Uh, hopefully, about 20, 25 minutes, and save at least 15 minutes for questions and comments and suggestions from you in the audience. Uh, to do so, please do use the GoToWebinar question facility on your screen. Uh, No point in emailing me or David, for that matter. We're here on the webinar uh, with you, so uh, please send it through that way. And I will feed your comments and questions and suggestions (coughs) into the discussion uh, that I have with David after his presentation. Uh, and I guess, really, uh, my best job is to get out of your way uh, so David can uh, can say what he would like to say. David, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, and good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to this uh, webinar where I'm going to be touching on, uh, as I do every six months for the Financial Services Club, uh, what's going on in Brussels uh, in terms of the regulatory agenda and the politics associated with this um, going forward. So, um, let's go to the first slide. In about four hours' time, uh, the board of the European Central Bank will be uh, convening. The major agenda item will be um, how to address uh, the uh, problem and the challenge posed by the hike in the euro vis-à-vis a basket of other um, currencies, notably the U.S. dollar. The uh, euro has um, uh, excelled vis-à-vis the U.S. dollar by about like, 14 16% in the last couple of months. And this poses a particular challenge for the EU in mm-hmm. that it makes exports from the EU and the Eurozone in particular are less competitive, although it might diminish the cost of imports. At, the, at a time when uh, the Eurozone and Europe in general, mainland Europe, is looking for ways to reignite and reaccelerate the economic um, uh, growth factor. Uh, exports, reduce import, uh, um, vulnerability factors and uh, and so on, Uh, this has become a a major issue. Interestingly, um, somewhat perversely perhaps, uh, this um, rise in the Euro vis-à-vis, particularly the US dollar, uh, is is perhaps an indication of the financial markets uh, confidence Uh, in the uh, the prospects of the Eurozone in terms of economic growth going forward and perhaps also an endorsement um, of and a vote of confidence in the EU recovery uh, which which, uh, was approved in July of this year. So let's move to this particular critical core subject uh, before we go any further. In July of this year, on the back of the European Commission's um, uh, proposals, something like uh, 750 billion euros of a uh, recovery fund was agreed upon. by The council members, it's currently going through some very agonizing uh, and difficult discussions at the European Parliament level who want to see certain adjustments being made uh, as, and condition, uh, further conditionalities being imposed on recipient countries. But this particular um, uh, plan, package, is designed quite visibly to uh, re um, debate the European economy, uh, not just in the Eurozone but across the 27 EU member states, uh, to finance solvency, strategic investments in via businesses, uh, workers, and Sovereign States itself. If all goes well and the agreement can be reached by, in the next couple of months, the whole of this um, $750 billion, uh, plan and fund uh, will uh, be implemented on the 1st of January uh, next year. Um, the constituent parts of this, probably the most important parts, after much debate, I might add, that the Council, where the Commission started off by asking for 500 billion euros for grants and, 200 and, and something like uh, 250 billion euros in loans. Um, the uh, final agreement was 390 billion in terms of grants and 360 billion in terms of loans. The big issue, uh, I think, was probably um, from the so called feudal uh, four sovereign states um, the Netherlands, um, Sweden, uh, Austria, uh, and Finland to. Uh, did not wish to, did not want to, um, provide funding, uh, primarily in the form of grants, but wanted to come in the form of loans, even if it comes with very, uh, with very, um, uh, uh, positive uh, and constructive uh, conditions. Now, the recovery plan will come in two major parts, two major pillars. One is the recovery and resilience facility, um, you know, in terms of grants and loans. National states will be asked to draw up from the beginning of next year a national recovery and resilience plan, uh, which will have to lay out in great detail how they intend to spend this money, whether it be in terms of propping up uh, existing businesses, providing uh, healthcare, uh, strengthening healthcare entities and infrastructures, employment subsidies, youth employment, short term work schemes and liquidity and solvency measures for the critical um, areas of SME, uh, SME, the SME constituency. Um, this will come with certain conditionalities. Uh, it will mean that um, member states will indeed have to provide very detailed plans that it provides in particular uh, funding to prop up um, state aid, as it were, to prop up um, Uh, uh, existing uh, businesses, which have been failing. The other big issue, of course, is with something like 40 uh, million uh, European people uh, and citizens uh, unemployed uh, or at least receiving some form of temporary social welfare and support, clearly that's going to be a big issue going forward. The other big issue, and the big, big focus of this uh, whole recovery plan is its emphasis on the so-called green and sustainability um, factor. something like 25% perhaps even growing to 30% of the 750 billion will be devoted and directed and focused at sustainable uh, and green uh, type um, uh, projects. In other words, in the longer term, I, we can see the encouraging development in renewables, energy efficiency, uh, electrical vehicles, infrastructure related to mobility and transport to mention uh, but a few. But that's going to be, I think, the, the focus running through all of this uh, particular program. Uh, in terms of the other pillar, of the solvency support instrument, there was an original um, view that we should look at injecting equity into companies across all sectors And that sadly was not obtained in the final uh, in the final um, shot as it were at council level I guess most member states um, in spite of the attractions of cropping of up and taking equity stakes in, in, in strategic industries there was a sense that you know this, smacked of, you know, the old uh, 1950s, 60s uh, type um, nationalization policies that were pursued by many, many uh, member states uh, even before the EC was created. And there was little appetite to going back to uh, this um, particular um, orthodoxy which was not seen as being the most uh, suboptimal. The EU budget will also be Propped up with a guarantee from the European Investment Bank to mobilise private capital. This is via financial intermediaries such as um, independently managed funds and special purpose vehicles. And this is where, you know, the role of non-banks will become pretty prominent, as I see it. And this is why the Commission is treading a very, very balanced line between ensuring that um, the non-banking sector and even including some of the, the shadow banking sector, which now represents 36% of all financial transactions uh, in, in Europe, um, it treads the line between ensuring that you know, the funds and, uh, and the bonds in particular held by you know, the fund managers are liquid, that they're sustainable, that they have the right maturity matching profiles, but that's certainly on one side. Whereas they're also concerned about ensuring a massive engagement, active engagement by the non financial services sector in uh, contributing to uh, this particular aspect of the uh, support instrument. And over and above that, there will be a strategic investment facility. Uh, this is very politically uh, charged. And the issue I think we've realized since the pandemic is that the degree to which we have become over-dependent in Europe on uh, foreign supply chains, particularly in the field of healthcare, something like 90%, according to the EU statistics, 90% of Europe's um, pharmaceutical and and health um, products, medical products per se, are actually produced in non-EU member states, where a prominent amount actually made in China And in India. But this is not just about healthcare. Uh, Issues have been uh, raised at council level about IT, digital digital transition. To what extent uh, should Europe continue to be heavily reliant on third country um, hubs and supply uh, chains, as well, when in fact we could be uh, doing a lot of this ourselves? And indeed, as we speak, uh, although it's gone rather silent, just before the summer, there was an initiative going through um, the Brussels with a view to coming up with um, guidelines, sort of, uh, legally binding guidelines, which would ensure that member states um, uh, actually assess uh, the degree to which um, third-country corporates uh, are providing critical strategic uh, products and services in that particular uh, member state. Uh, which could be to the detriment, um, should there be another pandemic or another crisis. Uh, last point, there would be EU budget guarantees to finance investment projects again via the European Investment Bank and national banks. So, in other words, all of the financial services industry will be involved with this. National banks as the vehicles for dispersing uh, disp- uh, disposing of these, um, of this uh, 750 billion uh, euros, but also Uh, the uh, private equity, asset managers, fund managers, as well. Um, The uh, other, I think, important strategic issue here is, for the first time ever, and this represents a mutualization of the cost of the COVID-19 pandemic at at EU level, is the notion of the EU going beyond um, national contributions by member states to fund its activities to uh, the degree of raising funds in the capital markets Repayable over the next twenty-eight, twenty-nine years. This, this is a, this is a major shift in terms of neutralization uh, of uh, of the cost, but also um, it is introducing a form of fiscal risk sharing and sen- and central debt uh, issuance, which has never been done before in Europe. It also boosts the whole notion and capacity for uh, counter-cyclical policy going forward. The other, perhaps, um, other really controversial issue is the notion of introducing a tax uh, on big multinational companies who uh, operate in Europe. There's talk about a a digital tax, which would um, uh, kick in uh, sometime over the next two or or three years, plastics tax, which actually will kick in in 2021, and a, a carbon border tax Um, on all non-EU member states that potentially could be introduced in uh, 2023. And the old uh, uh, highly controversial uh, evil sounding financial transaction tax, uh, which was so controversial across Europe. There's talk about introducing that and reviving it and introducing it in 2024. Um, this will all fit alongside the EU multiannual annual financial uh, framework. This is the seven-year plan, uh, which is worth 1.1 trillion euros at the moment. Um, there are, There is some uh, discussions still going on in terms of the how much of this will go towards targeted recovery and support of the EU economy. Now, in the longer term, clearly, as I've said, there's a big shift towards uh, green and sustainability focus of industry, SME support, given that SMEs are so vital uh, to the European economy. But the other um, issue that's going to have to be addressed in all this, given the big emphasis on sustainability and climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation, and dealing with and addressing uh, environmentally damaging uh, sectors of industry, is the whole stranded asset question. Um, the IMF earlier this year estimated that worldwide stranded assets in fossil fuels, uh, oil, or coal, and so on, could represent as high as 12 trillion uh, US dollars. So clearly, at some stage, this is going to have to be addressed. Now, the next issue going forward, of course, the other big issue on the uh, agenda, the double the double whammy, as it were, is the Brexit issue. Uh, as we speak, as you probably know, there are uh, being uh, there are attempts by the UK to um, to reopen the, uh, the withdrawal agreement, um, clearly after, uh, after a uh, after a period of nearly four and a half decades of um, following EU uh, regulation, all this is being thrown up in the air, and we're now um, facing huge questions about the future shape of state aid, which seems to be one of the key issues uh, blocking uh, any future agreement in terms of the that trade deal that's going on. Um, Just to remind you, in terms of financial services, the City of London, of course, plays a huge role. There are two two major issues that have to be addressed for the financial services industry. One, is there going to be a prospect of an equivalency decision, particularly vis-a-vis investment firms, uh, who in 2021, June 2021 will face a new investment firm regime uh, which will uh, mean that they will have to start applying uh, 30, billion, uh, 30 billion euros of consolidated assets uh, for a banking license, which will bring them into the ECB uh, as a scope of supervision. But more importantly, uh, the future access to the single market, particularly for wholesale markets, that is to say eligible counterparties and professional uh, investors, uh, could be held up. Um, uh, from January the first of next year on till uh, a future date, because there isn't a, uh, an equivalence decision yet uh, uh, provided by by the EU. The other big issue is the back-to-back uh, transactions and bookings, in particular uh, in the UK, um, vis-à-vis all financial services activities, and particularly for 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 banking. Um, the general theme running through the messaging and the narrative coming from Brussels and Frankfurt is it's very clear for all financial institutions uh, based in third uh, country uh, jurisdictions. um, Any uh, financial service activities uh, related to products and clients uh, in the EU should be managed and controlled from a location in the EU, so it's it's very clear. So let's just look at some of the current issues. Well, clearly, The Brussels narrative is one of the UK is perceived as pursuing a progressive uh, strategy to diverge vis-à-vis the EU rules and financial services. And this will include uh, issues like uh, MIFID II, it will include uh, PRIPS, it will include the SDGR, it will include a range of uh, financial uh, regulation and directives uh, which the UK uh, had contributed to and and had applied which includes the, the forthcoming uh, CRD5. Uh, but this is not just about financial search. So There are concerns about divergences in environmental employment and state aid. Um, the EU revised equivalency assessment uh, has been now revisited yet again in the light of the uh, stalemate in terms of negotiations. And again, we don't seem to have uh, any EU equivalency decision outside of a temporary equivalency decision uh, to allow UK clearinghouses beyond 2020, the end of 2020, for a limited period to allow um, European uh, Union counterparties to continue using UK CCP's. But outside of that, we've got nothing uh, that we can actually hang uh, onto going forward beyond the end of this year. But the, therefore, the Commission has reassessed um, the whole equivalency assessment uh, regime to be built around a forward-looking model, that is to say, the the growing concern of the interconnectedness with the UK uh, and ensuring uh, protection of financial stability, investor protection vis a vis the EU. Uh, the EU currency regime still remains, um, in terms of EU legal instruments, the only uh, way forward and the only gig in town, as it were. Um, but there are large areas of, of the equivalency regime which are not covered, notably bank lending and deposit taking. There are some areas which are covered happily like derivatives clearing under EMEA, trading and transparency on securities financing transactions uh, and reuse. But there's a big, big question mark uh, around to what extent the UK will follow uh, the existing EU uh, regulation framework but both in terms of banking, uh, asset management, fund management uh, going forward. Um, quite visibly, uh, this is a sticking point going forward, and we don't have much time to uh, to settle some of these issues before uh, the end of the year. And of course, we've missed the de- deadline in terms of the UK-EU respective equivalence assessments, which are due to be done and complete by the end of June of this year. So, therefore, you know, there's a lot of um, very uh, concerned. Um, Faces in Brussels and in Frankfurt about you know where all this is going and this is why we talk about where is it going, colleagues. Next slide. Um, we uh, uh, are looking at the what has happened in terms of the EU uh, equivalency um, uh, regime. But parallel to all this, the EU is minded to address some other important issues, notably how can we encourage more. Use of the capital markets union, in other words, the non-banking sector, in terms of refinancing the economy, reboosting and getting back on 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 par. And one of the more interesting and perhaps the big game changer, in my view, uh, is the quick fixes that have been uh, have been introduced and are awaiting uh, ratification by the council and the European Parliament. It looks actually rather good in terms of some quick fixes that need to be taken that cannot wait until the more uh, in-depth MIFID comprehensive review. A couple of issues that I think need to be flagged. One, there's talk about phasing out um, paper-based, as it were, communications and replacing it with uh, electronic investor uh, communications, with retail investors nevertheless being allowed to opt in if they so wish. In other words, if they wish to continue to receive paper-based communications, financial institutions that can do so, but clearly, big relief for the wholesale uh, investors. Exemption from cost and charges disclosures for the wholesale investors in relation to ancillary services, cost of advice and financial instruments, uh, but it won't cover investment advice and portfolio management, nor will it cover retail investments. But nevertheless, the Commission is looking uh, on the back, of, by the way, of, of ESMA advice to reducing Uh, both the, uh, not just the frequency, but exempting uh, whole swaths of the wholesale investors market from, uh, cost and charges disclosures. Distance communications, which is already taking a prominent role in terms of investor relations vis-a-vis, uh, in in investing, uh, companies. The option is there for all investors, uh, to uh, opt in, as it were, for ex post delivery, uh, cost disclosures and charges if they, if they wish to do so. Without the big issue that came out of consultation was the speed with which uh, financial institutions, um, as it were, uh, uh, acted on the instructions of investors. Periodic loss reports, which are triggered normally when there's a 10% loss, will be disapplied for the wholesale investors with an opt-in if they so wish, but retained for retailer clients on a biannual rather than a quarterly basis. And of course, the, the other big game changer a big surprise to us all uh, was the suspension of the so-called ex- execution reports under MIFIA, uh, which will be suspended uh, should this whole package go through from the beginning of January next year, uh, pending a 2022 full MIFID assessment of the value of these reports going forward. Some more flexibility is being built into expanding the list of non-complex products in MIFID. They seem to be very, uh, very targeted here in looking at allowing, for instance, uh, govern, um, some simple corporate bonds with make-home clauses which provide some degree of, of protection, being included in the list of non-complex products uh, going forward. And then, of course, the other controversial issue, um, removing the unbundling rules for research vis-a-vis trading commissions for small uh, and mid-cap issuers, which was deeply, deeply unpopular in, in mainland Europe, particularly amongst the French and the Germans going forward. My view is a lot of this will probably go through. It's all focused on COVID-19 uh, um, measures as were well to help uh, develop and uh, activate the capital markets in Europe. Next slide. Um, there is, however, other problems, structural problems lurking in the, uh, in the fund, ma- fund management uh, sector, which has got enormous attention since the COVID uh, crisis from the IMF, from the World Bank, from the OECD, from the European Commission, from ESMA, from the ESRB, uh, that is to say the European um, Systematic Risk uh, Board in Europe, which has been handing down a lot of warnings to ESMA, the national competent authorities, about the degree of, of their concern of market illiquidity uh, in the fund management space. They talk specific, specifically about investment funds with significant uh, exposures to uh, uh, corporate debt. Uh, and I would remind you here that um, uh, something uh, something like forty percent of all debt owed by, owned by companies to investors, it was seen as being vulnerable uh, in the EU according to statistics produced by IMF and confirmed by, by ESMA. In the real estate market, uh, understandably, predictably, with the drop in transactions, this has had a negative effect on real estate funds, uh, which are currently, according to statistics, it represents something like... Um, uh, 39% of all uh, investments are uh, held by, uh, held by uh, fund managers. And the concern here is that in both corporate debt and in terms of real estate funds, funds of funds, for instance, we could be uh, looking at some very key vulnerability factors, which is why, not surprisingly, uh, ESMA this month recommended uh, that uh, and was backed by the Commission that all fund managers, small, large, um, medium-sized, introduce a liquidity stress test at least every, every two years. Next slide. Um, going forward, um, we are also looking at the other uh, big elephant in the room, uh, the, the sustainability, uh, financial st- um, sustainability uh, focused um, agenda. Uh, probably the most important of these four pillars is the Disclosure Regulation per se, which uh, uh, which should apply from March 2021 and would affect all uh, all uh, asset managers and fund managers, in particular, and, and banks as well, in terms of sustainability investment as to whether um, uh, the funds either contribute or do no harm in terms of ESG uh, criteria, and whether sustainability risks have been identified by these funds, and whether ESG events could and have impacted negatively the asset uh, values. And sustainability factors like human rights, anti-corruption, AML compliance are highlighted as being has been very important. Now, as we speak, there's been a big lot of pressure coming from all over Europe to force the Commission to actually delay the implementation of this disclosure regulation. Many asset managers and fund managers believe they're not ready Uh, to deal with this, Um, so potentially I think we could be heading for a six-month, maybe an eight-month delay here going forward. The other factor I would mention is we, in theory, should have the, um, uh, not so much an introduction, but certainly a draft piece of legislation on an eco-label for all financial products ready by the third quarter of 2021. So this is, you know, looking forward. Um, there's also, um, uh, importantly, integration of sustainability factors into all of the existing legislation at EU level, usage, AFMD, MIFID uh, II, um, Solvency II, and the, invest- the um, Insurance uh, uh, Distribution uh, Directive, which introduces via delegated VACS uh, it actually it's already happened in June of this year a number of requirements for in terms of uh, organizational and operational conditions risk management policy and product governance product governance being a critical issue uh, critical issue going forward so um, for that note let me um, conclude in, in the next uh, slide by saying quite visibly the two big um, whammies at the moment. Uh, affecting and certainly influencing EU policy is Brexit, clearly. and as I said already, uh, the immediate question is what happens to uh, third-country investment firms uh, servicing notably uh, the wholesale markets from January the 1st of next year? What are they going to do in the absence of a? Equivalency decision, they're going to have to quite physically start negotiating individually with each of the national competent authorities, of course, the 27 EU states, uh, for a separate license. Now, retail investors, of course, are treated differently under MiFID and MiFIR. Uh, you have to set up a um, a local branch in the jurisdiction you wish to sell to those retail clients, um, which can also be uh, quite burdensome. Of course, there's a reverse solicitation which could be used but it's actually very restrained under the recent uh, provisions. So that's the first issue. And the second issue, obviously, is the degree to which uh, the financial services industry will engage at all levels in terms of the 750 billion recovery fund in acting as a vehicle uh, and acting as a, you know, a goalpost, as it were, uh, for entry into uh, the, the markets, and, and bearing in mind, of course, the important uh, dimension, twenty-five percent of that budget or that particular fund will be devoted exclusively uh, uh, to uh, the green and sustainability uh, investment agenda going forward. Michael, on those on those notes, Great. let me um, fall back to you. Thank you.
0: David, a masterful survey of a very complex situation and why we love having you come and sharing these little nuggets from Paris. Um, lots of questions, so we're going to have to move quickly if you don't mind. Um, I'll start with the first one, a small critique. Uh, Bob McDowell wonders if your analysis of the strength of the euro versus other currencies is short term. A little fanciful given the political tumult of the currency markets. So uh, just uh, how enduring yeah. do you think it is?
1: Yeah. Uh, I. I, I don't I don't think it's sustainable in the long term um, uh, the the u s dollar has a major advantage in that it's a unique currency in a very large um, region it's also a massively important reserve currency which the euro isn't um, and I think that once the u s gets back on track as it were uh, and perhaps revisits its uh, the 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 Fed's policy on on advanced inflation, as it were, um, advice maybe that the the dollar will regain on the uh, on the on the FX markets for the euro. Uh, well, frankly, today I don't think we can expect any uh, major decisions. I could be wrong, but I don't expect I don't expect um, Christine Lagarde to uh, herald in. A further expansion of the emergency bond buying uh, program. I don't think that that's on the cards. Nor do I see them uh, having much appetite or indeed even move uh, room uh, to lower the interest rates any further. Don't forget the interest rates are already in zero territory. Uh, Every 0.1% of an interest rate drop uh, swipes uh, 2 trillion euros off the banks, uh, European banks' balance sheets. So I don't think that that's on the cards. I think they'll. Continue. The ECB, ECB will continue to make statements, try and talk down uh, the value of the of the euro. But beyond that, I don't see any uh, any other measures being taken. Uh,
0: Liz Russell is curious. All this new funding, new forms of funding. Uh, of course, the, the taxation. Uh, Liz Russell is curious. How does this align and perhaps change the ECB's role?
1: Uh, the um, ECB's role of this is, is not re- is not really strategically critical, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, this is more of a, a, an, a, an EU-related issue. Mm-hmm. In other words, all of the um, new sources of finance that I mentioned, uh, including the controversial financial transaction tax, the course board carbon tax, the digital tax, All of this has to be, uh, as it were, reviewed and ratified by the Council of 27 EU Member States and also, by the way, the European Parliament. So, you know, the the ECB will not be uh, involved. They may express their views about this um, one way or the other, but they won't have, a, as it were, a a legal uh, opinion to, to, to put forward in terms of these new sources of finance. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh,
0: taxes. Stephen Morg- Morgatroyd is asking regarding the proposed digital tax. What is the U.S. response? But personally, I could also see here, uh, for, for example, the carbon border tax, uh, FTT and the large corporation tax equally. Have there been any early indications of response? A sort of a little rumbling that it might not be, not be
1: acceptable, comfortable? Yeah, yeah, I mean, certainly the US has, has never conceived its view uh, concerning the digital tax, um, and some some member states have been the tipping point of introducing it at a national level before the OECD has had time to review uh, a number of options uh, which could be adopted by the EU and the and the US. Um, but so, so, yes, I mean, I mean the U.S. Is, is, is visibly unhappy about this. They've made this publicly, publicly clear. Uh, there are a number of other non-EU member states that are uh, spooked about, the, particularly the cross-border uh, carbon tax. This, this hits, you know, uh, a range of issues, um, fuel and energy-related issues that is going to affect the likes of Australia. Uh, South Korea, um, China, and others. So, quite visibly, this is going to have to be balanced when, when it comes to discussing uh, the introduction of these uh, new uh, these new taxes to fund uh, the uh, the recovery program going forward. David, there's unprecedented change going on in the EU
0: as everywhere else it appears. Um, and you referred to the frugal four: the Netherlands, Sweden, Austria, and Finland. That's one block pulling away. We've obviously got the north-south divide. We've got the east-west divides. We've got the Brexit uh, channel divide. Um, so there's a lot going on, uh, that was separating the EU. Uh, and yet a lot of these initiatives, a lot, many people claim will unite it. Uh, Charles Ramon's is to believe the EU will still exist in its current form in 20 years' time. I mean, mm-hmm. is, is this, is this scale of change moving us to a new form of EU, whatever it is?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are two things that are happening. One, I think a realization that there needs to be more consultation uh, further down the food chain, you know, at, at, at uh, civil society level. Um, and indeed, by the way, this whole package of the 750 billion recovery plan will still have to be subject to uh, endorsement by national parliaments in the 27 member states. So that's already an indication of, you know, the change in orthodoxy so that's certainly one. There is a need for greater engagement uh, with civil society, with NGOs, uh, with uh, the financial services sector as well. As I said earlier, the Commission is, is only too clearly minded of the fact that they need to keep the financial the, the non banking financial services sector on board because they are the, the, the gateway to to new funding uh, uh opportunities. And I think the other big issue. Uh, is um, tackling the need to, to tackle um, the other, you know, the big strategic challenges and threats, by the way. One is the lack of, a, of any clarity around uh, illegal immigration into Europe. You know, there's, there's quite a, a significant divide in this in Europe. Um, and the other one is, as I mentioned already, is the degree to which um, the European Union has realized that it's over, very heavily over on foreign supply chains, particularly in the area of IT, digital um, services, uh, healthcare, et uh, etc., et cetera. Et cetera. And those areas are going to get priority going forward. I think there is a general consensus that you know, these, need to be, these need to be addressed. So, yes, I, I don't think um, you know, the EU is going to disappear overnight. Quite visibly, there are important, difficult negotiations going forward. Um, I think many of the southern EU member states recognise the, the virtues of, you know, uh, access, uh, unfettered access for products, goods and services um, across borders in Europe. The Eastern Bloc recognised the importance of funding and technical expertise and, and institutional capacity building that's provided by the EU to bring them up to the same level as the pre-accession countries. Um, but all of this has to be done. In the framework um, of a collective agreement on this 750 billion uh, recovery fund, so I remain cautiously optimistic that this will go through. This will herald in a new, uh, a new orthodoxy in terms of mutualization of risks, which has hitherto eluded Europe uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, so I think the the future, certainly over the next four months, will be critical in mapping out the tangible, uh, as it were, and concrete uh, plans going
0: forward. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip a number of questions. because I think you've touched on some comments from Hugh, Bob and some others, but uh, we're running short of time. So I've got a, just a couple of areas I'd like to cover. One is about the uh, UK-EU uh, relationship. Uh, Mark Cook is curious, sort of quickly, is the UK nervous market still our key to access? Meaning, is that still the UK's key to access? Is the UK still keen on access? So is the UK derivatives market oh, still, still the UK's key to access uh, financial services? Uh, I, I assume he's meaning here uh, equivalence in Europe.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. It's it's probably the more, one of the most critical areas of the financial services architecture. And indeed, it's no secret that the Commission decided just before the summer. Uh, to extend the temporary equivalency regime for CCP's based in the uh, UK, which means that counterparties based in the European economic area, that includes the 27 plus uh, Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland, uh, can continue to uh, clear their derivatives, particularly X trades and energy trades in, in the UK. There's, uh, there's no indication as to how long this is going to last. But quite visibly, you know, as I think I made this point on my last um, webinar with you, Michael, quite visibly, you know, nobody in Europe, in Brussels or Frankfurt, wants a fundamental rupture in the financial uh, yeah. flows in Europe. Nobody wants to find themselves as a result of a sudden cut-off in derivatives. T- trading, by the way, and clearing find itself in a situation where they're scrabbling, looking for alternative CCPs um, elsewhere in Europe. So uh, this is why there's been a very cautious approach taken by the Commission to ensure stability uh, uh, of the financial system via this temporary um, equivalency regime. But also, let me just mention while we're speaking about equivalency, I was looking at some statistics this morning, something like over 50% of uh, eurozone bond and equity issuances are um, originate in, in the UK. This is a huge, um, you know, huge thing, you know, huge um, interconnectivity factor that I mentioned already. And again, you know, it's not easy to, uh, it's not readily um, obvious to me that, you know, alternative sources can be found both in the trading and in the clearing sector. So clearly, these are the two issues that we need to focus on going forward.
0: Uh, Liz Thrussell
1: is, uh, points to the uh, state funding,
0: the scale of state funding here, which the EU is pursuing. Uh, I guess she's uh, really wondering here uh, is, is this hypocritical, given that this is the stumbling block or one of the stumbling blocks in the UK Brexit negotiations?
1: Well, actually, what's ironic about this isn't, um, you know, the. the 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 fact that the EU has introduced, on two occasions since COVID-19, uh, temporary um, stated rule relaxation measures. But the irony of all this was actually the UK, under Thatcher, was the one that was the key catalyst within the European Union or yeah. what was then the common market right. uh, to actually push for a more rigorous rules-binding uh, system of uh, state aid, uh, uh, as it were, restrictions which was being used very liberally by many, many states in mainland Europe. So it's a bit ironic in a way, um, yes, yes, but what, you know, what's concerning the Europe, European Union at the moment um, it isn't so much the zombie companies that you know, may be um, uh, propped up by the state aid uh, as much as they may, you know, the UK may wish to go further. And when it's, it's, it's now well, um, I think, reported in the, in the public domain, you know, about the need to pursue a divergent policy in the UK to make the UK a very attractive inward location for, uh, for investment. But clearly some, you know, some balance has to be found, maybe a mem- an MOU, uh, maybe a revision in the, in the withdrawal agreement every six months to make sure that everybody on both, si- on both sides, I okay. might add, are respecting the
0: rules. Uh, speaking of divergence, Hugo Innes is curious, do you have any comment on the EU's divergence from the OECD on blacklisting international financial centres, the offshore centres?
1: Yeah, well, again, in the public domain, um, the Commission was actually surprised, it did express a surprise, uh, at the criteria, um, um, sorry, the other way around, actually, it was the OECD expressed a surprise okay. at the um, uh, criteria that were be used by the EU uh, late last year in blacklisting whatever it was, 37 non-EU jurisdictions. Um, it believed that, you know, um, the OECD believed that their criteria were perhaps more robust and fairer. Uh, and quite visibly, you know, uh, the the EU uh, in the next couple of months will be updating at the, uh, at the request of council, several council members in Europe will be updating this blacklist with tougher criteria. Uh, this is backed also by the Green MEPs and some of the soldiers, but also, by the way, by some of the uh, centre-right MEPs as well. You might be surprised to find that a lot of the, uh, the heat are on uh, uh, respecting uh, anti money laundering uh, rules and exchange of information on an automatic basis vis a vis third countries is, is actually coming from some of the centre right uh, MEPs uh, in the European Parliament. So, yes, I think we're going to expect um, a much more um, focused uh, and standalone approach by the EU in terms of um, its, its uh, future iteration of this blacklist. We've run out of time, but I can't resist. And you, you're in a unique spot on
0: a unique, at a unique moment. So we're lucky to have you. Uh, Paul Dooley led with this, uh, which was he's concerned about announcements from the British government on its intentions to breach uh, the Brexit withdrawal agreement, breaking international law and ver- dramatically undermining trust. If the British government stick to this course, the city of London will for sure lose its footing. Um, I might add to that, that uh, I've seen this uh, comment quite a bit over the last uh, 36, 48 hours. And uh, there've been, of course, intimations as well, that London is a major arbitration mediation center and that some of this stuff uh, could have some effects. Uh, What's, uh, we could go on about this for another webinar without any trouble, but what's the feeling at the moment in, in Paris? What are people saying about this? Is this just another? typical UK ploy? Is this a groundbreaking uh, area? Is it a deal-breaking uh,
1: ploy? Yeah. Um, well, it's not so much Paris as much as the the whole of the EU, with okay. perhaps the notable exception of the Republic of Ireland, um, who have you know, very privileged trading relationships with the UK. But the whole of the EU, at council level seems to be pretty much um, of the common view, there is a consensus that, you know, there can be no negotiations based on divergence from the critical areas in relation to the four freedoms, uh, freedom of goods, services, um, people, and capital. And, and, and added to that, you know, are issues like respect to the environmental, uh, social, employment law, um, and of course, more recently, the state aid issues as well. So there is, a, I think, a unified opinion, not just in Paris but elsewhere, that you know that there needs to be some upfront guarantees from the UK in terms of of these of these particular elements um, going forward. And this is potentially what's holding up the you know the critical um, uh, equivalency. Uh, assessment and decision-making process. Some are even saying that this is probably a ploy being used to um, encourage or <laughs> encourage the UK to come forward with, um, you know, a compromise before the end of the year. Quite visibly, um, the financial services industry is right. This 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 could be a big. This is going to be a big uh, big issue. Um, The ECB has been warning over the summer, banks are still not doing enough to uh, redeploy staff and assets and control and manage their assets from a location in the EU and they're not kidding. Um, So yes, this and indeed I think um, some of the leading trade bodies in the UK have been putting the concerns that there needs to be there needs to be a compromise reached uh, fairly quickly, particularly in relation, not in relation to all of the 38 pieces of legislation, mm-hmm. but issues that are, are critical that we've mentioned, such as uh, clearing of derivatives, uh, trading, uh, issuance of bonds um, and equities, all of these take place and are critical in the City of London where there is a sort of an ecosystem. Uh, which provides a a great combination of um, expertise that doesn't seem to be replicated elsewhere uh, in Europe. And the, the fear, I guess, deep down in Europe also is, well, hold on, uh, we don't want to go too far out. Of it. Otherwise, we will find a lot of financial transactions and investment not coming into Europe but going elsewhere beyond Europe to the United States, uh, Singapore or, or other non-EU jurisdictions. Yeah. Uh, these are very interesting times. I
0: was I was I was surprised that, uh, last night, in fact, in the UK, that the news uh, was very much focused on the reduction to six people. And then there was the second item was, in fact, this uh, breach of international law, but it merited uh, about two or three minutes. And I was also surprised at some of the reactions. Uh, Ms. Van der Leyen, you know quoting Actus uh to show how fundamental uh, this attack has been. Uh, David, as ever, I mean, uh, we've got some people who want to talk about alternative currencies, uh, digital, digital currencies, the wire card typical, <laughs> uh, long-term debt, uh, the taking of equity stakes by government. Uh, I could go on, but uh, sadly, I can't. Um, and I'm getting a number of comments here thanking you for your uh, very kind presentation uh, and very informative. And I'll pass all of those comments and questions on to you, of course, as, as we do. Uh, But sadly, it remains for me to thank uh, three groups of people quickly and your last. Uh, The first is, of course, as I opened our sponsors. Uh, May I say thanks to all of you. I hope you found uh, today's uh, discussion interesting and and helpful and certainly it came at a propitious time. Uh, Secondly, uh, all of you watching and commenting and contributing, thanks very much for uh, for all the comments. And uh, Sorry I can't get around to all of them in in a session. Uh, We have a really good uh, set of webinars coming forward next week. Uh, looking at patenting, something we often don't look at in financial services, but the nitty-gritty of what it means to get financial services paid. We're going to be looking at leadership and mindfulness, a rather interesting departure for us. Uh, Our FSG Anti-Money Laundering Group continues, uh, and it will be looking at the tech side of AML. And very finally, uh, we're going to be looking at how you do employment-related securities. Uh, and The complexity is going to be examined by our expert on that subject, David Craddock. So it should be, should be a fascinating week next week. But most importantly, David, I need to thank you. Uh, you're a regular here because we really love having you. So thank you so much. And as I said, uh, or as you said, my apologies, uh, David's coming back in early January. Traditionally, David opens our year and he will be opening it next year. The date's already up on the calendar so you can book it if you want. Um, and if there's something of an emergency nature, I have a sneaking suspicion we'll be calling <laughs> David to do an emergency <laughs> webinar. Uh, which, given the way that the Brexit negotiations have been going for four years, uh, could well be necessary. Anyway, uh, David, as I said before, sadly, in these times of COVID-19, I'm unable to open the gates let the audience applaud. So I have my Korean karmic clapper, and I will do it myself if you don't mind. Thank you most sincerely for your session today. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.